Well, it is so good to be together around God's Word. The choir and congregation sounded wonderful today in singing. Hopefully your heart has been led to worship. I'll ask you if you have a copy of God's Word, and I pray that you do. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32, will be our verses in examination. I'll ask you, if you will, let's stand together as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Let's stand together. The Bible's turned down to Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. The Bible says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word and its meaning to our heart and to our mind. You may be seated. So Jesus is walking this road down to Jerusalem. Many of us here today have lived long enough And a long enough life where we can give some solid, tangible evidences of God's goodness that we can share. Amen? Somebody say, God has been good to me. Many in here today and tuning in live, listening in, can give testimony and witness to God's grace and His provision. See, we as Christ followers have traveled a road that few might not never travel, and we have gone farther than many are willing to go as we walk with our Lord Jesus. And I began to think to myself, what one word could be categorized as I am walking with my Lord Jesus? What one word comes to mind? One simple and yet deep word, and that is the word grace, God's grace. I can look back on my life and many in here too and say, God has been good. God has been gracious to me. I wonder why it is that we serve such a gracious God to us who has, who has lavished us with his grace, and yet we have a hard time being gracious one to Jesus is our example. I think of this word grace. God has been good and gracious to me. And I began to catalog some of the moments in my life and through tribulation and trials and hard times and good times, I can say that God has been good to me. Julie Barrier, who at one time was an adjunct professor at Golden Gate Seminary, said this, 
of the Christian walk, saying, don't let your Christian walk become mundane. Open your eyes and marvel at his work. Have you just simply sat there and marveled at the work of the Lord? Has there ever been things in your life where you would say, that's only something God can do? And just have marveled at his work. See, nothing should excite us more than to see God's people grow in their walk with the Lord. And by the way, that is something that only God can do. But it is also those times in our lives when we can see a visible manifestation of the work of the Lord. And it becomes evident and it becomes obvious in our lives. We can say, God has been good to me and I can't explain why he has, but he has. And God's grace has been lavished upon me. I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out, but he has been good to me. And I'm not really one that would write down my prayers I'll never forget this. I remember going to a, 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 a campus seminary one time, and, and uh, we were about to have our meal together. And one of the hosts was called upon to, to pray over the meal. And, they, and this particular person said, let's bow our heads as we pray over our meal. And I'll never forget this. I heard this crinkling of paper. And I thought to myself, with one eye cocked open, <laughs> Is he just about to read a prayer? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with writing out your prayers to kind of track where you want to go, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and although I'm not one for writing out my prayers, I saw this the other day, and I would like to share it with you because I think it's helpful. The prayer that I saw circulating on the Internet was this. Dear Jesus, thank you for all the blessings in my life, the joy that... Your love gives me is indescribable. I like that simple prayer so much, don't you? I like that prayer so much, in fact, I want us to say this together in, in a simplistic liturgical form or fashion. Let's say this together. Dear Jesus, thank you for all the blessings in my life. Let me hear you. The joy that your love gives me is indescribable. Thank you for the hope you give me for each day. Amen. I like that simple prayer. Simple. And by the way, that'll preach. The road that many of us have walked for so many years have been a long one, but one that has been filled with precious memories and have been filled with hardships as well. But let me tell you this. I am only... Uh, I'm about to have a birthday, will be 47. Some consider that young, but yeah. We'll just say that's a young age. <laughs> yeah. But I have learned this. The fragrance of the Savior seems so much sweeter when we know that he has walked with us through the good times and the hard times. And in today's sermon, Jesus is walking another road. He is walking a road traveling to the cross on Calvary or Golgotha's hill. He is traveling this road, so, get this, you and I don't have to. In fact, the Bible tells us that as we stand before a holy and righteous God, 
that the righteous and holy God will see the Son on us and his righteousness and will say, justified or vindicated. In fact, the Bible tells us this. And as Paul writes the letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he said, for our sake, we made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus walks this path so we didn't have to. Amen. Last week we were introduced to this young rich ruler. If you recall from last week, this young rich man who had all this money in the world and many possessions. He had been traveling with this caravan a caravan of people who have began to just become congregated to the Lord Jesus. Jesus was teaching on right doctrine. He was touching and healing people. And this caravan of people came. And, and with this caravan was some religious leaders of the day who wanted to question him. And this young rich ruler in this caravan. And those who might just simply have been curious. Who is this man from Galilee? Regardless, Jesus was becoming very popular extremely popular and this young rich man he asked of Jesus he says how can I have eternal life and I was convinced that the reason we don't ask this question today and many don't ask this question is because we think that we're okay we live in a culture of people who think they're okay with the Lord in fact they may be separated from him how can I have eternal life? Well, Jesus said, you know the commandments. I know you know them. And then he says, well, do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Steal, lie, defraud, or dishonor your parents. And he said to them, well, teacher, of all of these things I have kept from my youth, from 13 years of age, I have kept them all perfectly. And of Jesus, of course, being all-knowing, looks into the man's heart and says, you lack one thing, there is one obstacle, go sell what you have and follow me. He found the man's obstacle, which was his possessions and his wealth. They had become the ruler in his life. So he tells the rich man, go sell what you've got and follow me. But he could not, as you recall, because he had a lot of things. He had a lot of possessions. And they were his king, and they were his ruler. So after this, Jesus presses the disciples on the matter of who can inherit eternal life. Is it rich or poor? And he says this, which is the key to that particular teaching by the Lord Jesus. He says to them, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. Rich, poor, anyone who comes unto the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Rich, poor, white, black, whatever ethnicity, whatever language, for all things are possible with God. But today, I want to present a sermon entitled, Jesus's Five Steps to Victory. And by the way, this isn't a message that is a self-help or your best life now type of sermon. At first hearing this title, one might be inclined to say, well, this sounds like a motivational sermon. And I think sometimes in the pulpit, it is appropriate to smile and be joyful. But there are other times when I believe you must be somber and serious. And I believe this is one of those occasions. You might think that this is a motivational sermon, that is, until you realize that these verses 
are a forecasting of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Now let me say this before beginning. Every sermon that you will hear, they will have motivational tones to them. But they're only motivational to the point that they press us to know that it is in Christ alone. So let's begin. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus said, as he was walking ahead of them, because they were all amazed. And though they followed, they were afraid. And, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, was about to happen. He's about to tell them all that's going to transpire. And not many days ago, we met over here at the drama site uh, for Easter resurrection morning uh, worship. And not many days ago, as we reflected and celebrated the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and according to the timetable that we're on now, Jesus would still be teaching and walking with his disciples. We are into some 40 days afterwards, if we were to follow that particular timeline. And this verse gives the worshiper, and by the way, that's you and me, gives the worshiper and the reading the prophecy laid out by the Lord Jesus himself. And Mark says of Jesus that he is going up to Jerusalem and it most likely had to do with his coming death. When we hear that term by the evangelist Mark, written of the Lord Jesus, it has to do with his coming death. I'll never forget the days um, when we would, uh, we, would, we would attend Sunday morning worship as a family. And, I, and I'll never forget... We would always go to my grandmother's after church for lunch. I miss those days. I miss the cornbread. I miss the great food that my grandmother would cook. And when she wasn't able to cook, she would sit in a chair and she would point to my uncles, make sure you do this and that and to make sure we had a meal. And, I, and I'll never forget this, that if my uncles were to say to my father and would ask them, are you going to mama's today? We understood that. Are you coming for lunch? We understood that. Are you coming to eat lunch with us today? So it is with going down to Jerusalem implied that Jesus was marching towards the cross. That was his passion to cling to the cross. And so the image is given. It is a master walking ahead of his disciples. He is steering the way. He is, he is showing his, his authority, but Jesus was always teaching. There is not one moment in Jesus' ministry where he was not teaching his followers something. In his actions, in his footsteps, in the things that he did, he was teaching. I want you to think about it. These were supposed to be people who would carry on the work of the kingdom once, once Christ had ascended to the Father. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Maybe it's not a secret. <laughs> but the imperative to make disciples, as we see in Matthew 28, it isn't over. It's not the great, it is not the great multiple choice scenario. I believe you may have learned that this morning in your Sunday school class. It is not multiple choice. Making disciples is not over. The disciples knew the tension at Jerusalem. So going down meant, meant there's some tension there. And yet they were marching straight for her. And for this, they were afraid or they were marveled. Some of your Bibles might say they were marveled or amazed. Other translations say that the disciples, that they were astonished at what Jesus 
was doing, walking ahead of them. Does the master march so hastily towards death? Does the teacher not see the, the hazards there? And yes, he does. And yet, if we were to model Jesus, this is what we must do. Sometimes serving Jesus is not all a bed of roses. It's not always a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, your best life. Now, it's difficult times. And if we were to model Jesus, this is what we must do. Willing to march wherever the Lord leads, regardless of the hazards. The tense that the Greek uses makes one feel that nothing is good. Nothing is good that way, Jesus. Nothing is good going towards Jerusalem. Nothing good will come from going towards Jerusalem. Nothing. Something to think about. We could talk about how dull the disciples seem. Slow to get it. We, we could always cast that stone, right? Why do the disciples seem so dull? They didn't always get it. But in this case, they pressed closely to Jesus. They followed him. And only time would tell, as the Gospels would lay it out, how long they would stay close to him before they were scattered at his crucifixion. And here is King Jesus. He is, he is setting the precedent from that day forward. But how? How is Jesus setting a precedence here? How is he doing so? Because if he goes first, then his disciples must follow. That's you. It's not just in Mark. That's you, his disciples. We must follow. By his eagerness, he would teach them how honorable and kingdom-focused suffering can be. We don't like that term, do we? We don't like to think of suffering in its present form. We don't like to suffer. No, no one that I, know, that I have met said, Man, I, I just, I'm so excited I get to suffer today. But we can appreciate it once we figured out that it has helped us grow and that it has groomed us to be more like Jesus. See, the disciples, they would reflect back on this moment. They would reflect back on this moment and they would take courage. You know how I know that? You know how I know that they would reflect back and that they would find courage in what Jesus was doing as he was marching? It is because you are reading a recollection of that courage through the pen of Mark. You're reading it. They would remember their trivial suffering when compared to his and as they remember this, they would, they would have courage. As the Savior marched forward in this path of, of trial uh, uh, that, would, that would give them endurance. As I see the Lord marching on, it would give them courage. It would give them peace. It would give them strength. It would, be, it would help them to build up a resistance to fear that would make the very gates of hell tremble. I want that type of resistance to fear. Reverend Robert Bickerstead said this of Jesus' march. He said, arm yourself with the like mind and blush at the very thought of cowardice or retreat when summoned to suffer for the Redeemer's sake, remembering how eagerly he went before. In other words, march on as Jesus marched on into the heat of battle for the sake of the kingdom. 
And then he begins to explain to his disciples what must happen. And this is where we begin our five points that Jesus lays out towards victory. He said, seeing we are going out to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over into the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Again, here is this phrase, here is this term, going out to Jerusalem. And so Mark understood this saying dictated to him by the Apostle Peter to mean Jesus is marching to Jerusalem to die. In fact, he uses this term, the Son of Man, to describe himself. The Lord Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man some 88 times in the New Testament. It is a term that Jesus uses of himself and others use of Jesus. And he speaks of his humanity, that Jesus was the Son of God but was robed in human flesh. He was just as much a human as you and I are. In fact, 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out in the world. And then verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. How could our, how could our Lord Jesus not suffer on the cross if he did not bear humanity? There's another phrase in the New Testament, another places in the, in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament where the Son of Man is used. And this time it is used in conjunction with his divinity. So humanity and divinity. Son of Man would cover them all. In verse 6 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, it says, But that so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then the Pharisees marveled and said, Well, who but God can forgive sin? Right. That's right. Who but God can forgive sin? Son of Man, his hum humanity and his humility. And his divinity. But let me say this. We ought to praise the Lord God Almighty for suffering and dying for my sin and for your sin. And yet he's the only one who could do it. So let's look at these five steps, this five-step program. Uh, you've, you've heard self-help books, you know, how to influence your, your enemies, you know, those type, those type books that there are self-help books, how to influence others. Jesus lays out these five steps to victory and not necessarily five steps that we might say, hey, I, mm, that sounds like self-help for me. But listen to these steps. Number one, he was delivered unto the religious leaders for death. We'll count that as an overarching statement. We will count that as this turning over as one. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And, and he would be delivered to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate to stand before him in trial. The Roman governor, either because they, they, uh, they had not the power to put him to death themselves, or because they were eager that he should die on the cross a Roman punishment. In short, let me say this, they wanted the Gentiles to do their dirty work because, you know, thou shalt not kill and all. Just in case we have forgotten or that we need a refresher, 
a reminder. Let me remind you of what Jesus said of his own death and his resurrection. Well-known verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 18. This is what Jesus says of his death and resurrection. He says, no one takes his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so the Lord makes a general statement. And this general statement is that he is led and given up to, to die. He is turned over to the, to the religious order of the day. But he simply just not, he does not let this generalization go. He gets specific. In verse 34, he says, not only will he be turned over, but they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So there's your victory. So let's look at these steps together. The second step is, they mocked him. At first glance, one might be inclined to say, just because they mocked him does not mean that he was persecuted. At least with our Western eyes, Americanized eyes, we would say, well, this mockery doesn't need mean any more than they just speaking ill of him or making fun of him. But he was persecuted nonetheless. Every gospel account holds this as a vital point in the narrative. And in Mark 14, verse 65, it says the mockers are said to have covered Jesus' face as well or blindfolded him to indicate that he was unworthy as a human being. They mocked him because he claimed that he was going to rebuild the temple in three days. It had been destroyed, and in three days, he will rebuild the temple. Remember that? They mocked him for claiming his divinity and his kingship over the Jews. You are the king of the Jews. And worse yet, they mocked him because they could. They mocked Jesus just simply because they could. And the human nature, given enough chance, will always run the road towards destruction. You ever heard the phrase, give a man enough rope? So we marvel at the state of the world today. I don't know, have you ever found yourself saying, things that seem, just seem to have gotten worse? You, you ever find yourself saying that? Reality is so much more sobering than that. The world has always been this twisted. We just see more of it because of technology and the internet. And this mockery is more, more than likely nothing that you have ever experienced. And by the way, calling someone a Jesus fanatic or Jesus freak, I don't consider that mockery. I consider that a compliment. A fanatic for Jesus? Well, we're going to be fanatical for something. Why not let it be Christ? So not only did they turn him over to be persecuted, not only did they mock him severely, but then they spit on him. Let me ask you this. By show of hands, who has ever been spit upon because of their faith? Now, we know that there are others in the world right now, as I'm, even as I'm speaking, who have suffered persecution and severe persecution. 
There are stories that circulate every day of the week of how the enemy has set out to destroy Christ's church, but he will not. He cannot. There's others in the world who have suffered more than simply being spit upon. And the persecution of Jesus is getting progressively worse. Have you noticed it? It is getting progressively worse as, as he's forecasting what's going to happen. First they mocked him. Now they're going to spit on him. And any student of the Bible, you should recognize that this does not come out of left field. It doesn't come out of nowhere. In fact, you will know in what we call the suffering servant discourses in Isaiah, the mockery and spitting are forecasted and they are part of the Messiah's suffering. In Isaiah uh, chapter 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back for those who strike and my cheeks to those who will pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. For people in those days to be spit upon was an act of ultimate disgust towards another person. And, and still today. But let me ask you this. Think seriously now. What was Jesus' crime? Was it inciting insurrection? Was it causing a revolution or right? Yes, Jesus was a revolutionary, but more so towards teaching what is right, doctrinally speaking. No. He was mocked and he was spit upon for preaching and teaching truth. You recall the Bible says that they had came from, from, from regions around, caravanded to him, to hear his doctrine. So these first two are, are, are nothing that would take one's life, but they get progressively worse. And by the way, I'm using these terms in the perfect tense. Why? Because they happened, right? Number four, they flogged him. We know by Roman law, if we study Roman law, that one could be Scourge with 39 lashes and 40 lashes would be unlawful. To administer 40 lashes would be unlawful. Only the Roman citizens, the senators, the soldiers and women would be exempt from this, this, this flogging or beating. What was the instrument of choice? You might hear a Sunday school lesson on the Holy Week or on the Resurrection Sunday that might point to something like this. The instrument of choice was a short whip with several, uh, several single or braided leather uh, uh, thongs of varying lengths. And, and they would be stitched together, sewn together, if you will, uh, with some small iron balls on the end or with some small pieces of sheep bone that were tied at certain intervals, certain lengths. Sometimes we would say this is what the Bible describes or history would describe as a cat of nine tails. But think about it. I want you to think about this as administered to the back of our Lord as I continue. For flogging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied and upright on an upright post. The back, the buttocks, and the legs were flogged either by two soldiers which we would call lictors, or by one who rotated the stance, depending on his uh, attitude for the day, his discretion for the day. But the brutality of the flogging depended on the disposition of the soldier. 
Whether or not he was in a good or merciful mood or not de depended on whether or not this, this person on the whipping post would receive uh, 20 stripes or 39 according to Roman law. But the beating on the post was meant to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. In fact, many times, historically speaking, many folks would have never made it off of the whipping post. As the Roman soldier struck the back of the victim with full force, the iron balls would cause deep bruises and the leather thong of sheep bone would cut into the skin and to the flesh. Then, as the flogging resumed, there would be tears that would be ripped into the skeletal muscles and would produce throbbing strips of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood. Now, Jesus is not saying all this to his disciples. He simply uses this term flogging. Pain and blood loss would, would cause this circulatory shock. Something physicians call today hypovolemic shock. The extent of blood loss may have determined how long the victim would have survived on the cross. They would have gone into shock by the loss of blood. After the scourging, the soldiers would then often taunt the victims. And by the way, they used Jesus as an example. So there would have been a severe beating given to our Lord. He would have hung on the cross, not short to the ground, but high upon the tree. Remember what Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. That is literal, by the way. But our Lord, after he was flogged, after he was beaten, he hung on that cross for six hours for you. So that you could be free from sin. And then number five, they killed him. The beating and the flogging did not kill the Lord, but he died on the cross. I remember hearing somebody say, no ordinary man could endure such beatings. That's right. Although Jesus had full humanity, he was not ordinary. Now Mark says that Jesus predicted his coming death, but we, we also know that nothing happens that was not willed by the Lord, sanctioned by God the Father. Think of this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the first verse I ever learned of the Bible. This is a verse that should forever be burned into our DNA as Christ followers. We should be able to wake up at 3 and 4 in the morning, a.m., and be able to recite this verse. It should be ingrained in who we are. The Apostle Paul points back to the occasion of Christ's death in Scripture and says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, this Corinthian creed, and says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I have also received, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scripture. It's interesting that Paul uses this phrase, for our sins, and, and we sometimes gloss this over. And why do we do that? It is as, it's as if we, we know it to the very point of being unmoved by it. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We can gloss over that verse without ever thinking deeply upon it. So, he died for your sins. Or to say that it was because of your sins that he had to die. He died over your sins. This is what he died over. This is what his, this was his crime, was your sin, not, not his. And then we find the victory. Five steps to victory, right? So what is the victory? I wish we would have queued up victory in Jesus. Seems appropriate, doesn't it? After three days, he will rise again. Victory. Why in the middle of all of this seeking caravan of people did Jesus stop to share about his death? Why did Jesus forecast his death, hugging on the heels of the discourse with this young rich man? Why here? If one is to follow Jesus with their whole heart and give it all to him as he instructed the rich man to do so, then one must expect opposition, if not death. F.B. Meyer said of this occasion, if you are not called to suffer with him, then serve. Service like Christ will bring you near to his throne as will also a share in his suffering. And then we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, just one verse, into, one verse more into the Corinthian creed. It says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So Jesus' five steps meant that he was turned over to religious leaders, that he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was flogged, and then they killed him. But praise the Lord, he rose again. Amen. Jesus' five steps to victory isn't, isn't a self-help, self-centered baloney. I, I often think of that term. That, that ought to be a theological term. It is not human self-centeredness because the victory is in Jesus alone. See, these five steps deal more with finding fulfillment in serving Jesus, even in the tough spots. Remember at the very beginning, I said to reflect on the good times and the bad times in our lives and how this, the fragrance of the Savior is so much sweeter, not only in the good times, but knowing that he's walked with us in those valleys. This is not about human-centeredness. But fulfillment in serving Jesus, even in the tough spots. And then for those who are still in their sins, Jesus went through these sufferings. Number one, for the glory of God. And then for the sinner to be saved. Let's pray together.